Welcome to this week's C10 Conversation. I'm Matt Folks. If you're a longtime listener to this podcast, you know that one of our initial goals was to highlight some of the outstanding mentors we have in our C10 Mentoring and Leadership Program. And you can go back and listen to podcasts with a few of those. We also use this podcast to highlight the guest speakers we have for our students and mentors during our weekly C10 sessions. Well, in this week's episode, we're combining both of those goals, if you will. On Wednesday, March 31st, we did relatively short interviews with three of our mentors in front of our students on the main stage at the Musical Theater Heritage location at Crown Center in downtown Kansas City. This week, you're going to hear one of those interviews as Max Utzler, who's been a co-host on this podcast, chats with mentor George Norton. George has been a mentor in C10 since our first year, and he has served on a couple of committees for C in the Major Leagues. George is very active in the Kansas City community, he has served or is serving on various nonprofit boards and committees, including Musical Theater Heritage and Kansas Public Radio. George has led an interesting life. He was career Army, which you'll hear about during this conversation, including serving as the public information officer for the Army in Berlin during the fall of the Berlin Wall. He talks about that briefly during this interview, and he's led an entire session with our students about it. At some point down the road, we hope to have George back on this podcast to talk more extensively about that experience. It's pretty fascinating, especially if you enjoy history. But the cool thing about this chat this week is that it's two old friends talking. Max was a professor at KU and George was working on his master's, and they developed a great friendship that has spanned about 40 years. Again, this was recorded in front of our students and mentors at MTH, and it starts with our pregame batting practice. We hope you enjoy it. First of all, we start all of our podcasts with some just some quick answer off the top mm-hmm. of your head kind of things. You probably heard some of those. So uh, just fill in the blanks for me here, please. Okay. Uh, my hero growing up was? My father, my stepfather. In what way? Well, he took me on. I was seven years old when he married my mother. Uh, I was born in Adams. I was a child of a single mother for a long time. And uh, when he married my mother he, in 1956, he said, you know, I want to adopt your son. And that's how I ended up with the last name of Norton. If I wouldn't have become a career army person, I probably would have... Been a writer. Uh, that was one of my passions. It still is. Uh, I don't do as much of it as I would like, but uh, I certainly uh, enjoy being able to put words together in a sentence. What's your motto in leadership? I think probably be true to yourself and then work from a basis of a moral underpinning, do the right thing, take care of your people. And if you could meet one person from history, either someone currently living or dead, who who would that person be? Without doubt, it would be George Washington. This is an individual who took the country uh, through the Revolutionary War, some very tough times, was a well-to-do planner, uh, put everything at risk. And when the nation was born, had the opportunity to be handed the crown and made king and walked away from it. And I'd really like to know what his thoughts were. Okay, let's uh, go back in time a little bit, back to the boyhood there. Uh, did you really have a home, anything you'd call a hometown? <laughs> well, probably the closest would be Norfolk, Virginia. I was born in eastern Tennessee, raised in Danville for a few years, and then we lived in Norfolk. And then 
1956, as I said, my mother remarried. 1958, we hit the road. We were in Germany. So basically seven years in Europe before I ever graduated from high school. Graduated from high school in California, started college there, went back to Virginia. We went back to Norfolk, and that's where I graduated from college. So Norfolk would be the closest I would call to home. And at what point did you realize that going the Army route was going to be the way to go rather than becoming a writer? Was, was that before college or during? No, it was probably during. Originally, I mean, I, I, as I said, I wanted to be a writer. However, when I went to college, I would, was planning on going to law school. So I was a political science pre-law major. And, of course, this would have been uh, in the late 60s during the height of the Vietnam War. Uh, and I felt probably my sophomore year decided I wanted to go through ROTC. Was only going to go in the military. I, I felt an obligation, first of all, to serve as a citizen. Second of all, obviously, with a father who was in the military, and a non-commissioned officer, uh, I had a very good feel for the military. But I was going to go in, and my dad suggested, if you're going to go in, go in as a commissioned officer. Don't go in as an enlisted man. So I was going to go in, do six years, get out, save, obviously save money, and then go to law school. Well, one tour led to another. You know, originally I hadn't planned on making it a career, but I really enjoyed leading troops. As a 22-year-old second lieutenant, I had 44 men under my, my responsibility. Had to train them, take care of their equipment. I had four uh, tracks that I had to take care of, all the crew served weapons. So there was a lot of responsibility that went with that. And I was mom, dad, big sister, big brother, and, you know, punisher and whatever to all the troops in my platoon. So that was probably your first big, big attempt at being a leader. And yet here you had to lead people who were older and perhaps even more experienced than you were. What was that like for you? It was, it was definitely a challenge. Uh, obviously, the younger people, uh, it was a lot easier. But with my NCOs, for example, I mean, my platoon sergeant, you know, I'd been in the Army close to 20 years, had been in combat in Vietnam. And here I was, a, a green lieutenant, coming in and running the platoon. So it was learning from my senior NCOs, those that were mentoring me, not only my non-commissioned officers, but also my officers in the company, and then trying to make sure I set standards for the troops from a training standpoint and a conduct standpoint and enforce those rules uh, by a variety of different ways. I mean, cajoling and obviously taking whatever action needed to be taken. But the bottom line was learning how to motivate those young men, both older than me and younger than me, to do the job that we had to do. How successful were you at doing that at that young age? Uh, it was a rough start initially. Uh, you know, you, I, I came in with an idea that this is the way it ought to be and very quickly learned that I needed to learn from the people that knew how to do it and uh, model on their behavior and then model my behavior for the people that I was leading. Was there a particular turning point that caused that to happen? Um, probably uh, when I commanded my first company. Uh, as a first lieutenant, I had a, a company in the, one of the infantry battalions. The attitude and the approach that I had as a platoon leader in the company XO 
was completely different when I got to the company level. And luckily, I had NCOs, a first sergeant, who really helped me understand that you can't be as demanding uh, at a company level as you have to be at a platoon level. And was that kind of the moment then that made you think that maybe this Army thing might be something to do a little bit longer? You know, at that point, no. Uh, I was really not planning on staying for a long time. Uh, I did three years, four years at Fort Carson with the 4th Infantry Division. Then went back to a school and then went to another assignment, pushing troops in a training center. And those two assignments were really good. I was very successful. Uh, I was moving uh, up the ranks very quickly and was given plum jobs, plum, plum assignments. And then after that, I ended up going to Europe in an assignment that was probably the toughest I'd ever had up to that point in my career. And did you still have a chance to have mentors for you who could help you along the way? Was the structure of the Army good enough to make that happen? Absolutely. I think that one of the things that you learn very early on as a leader, uh, whether it's non-commissioned officer or officer, your job is to train the person who follows you because they're very likely in, in the profession that we're in going to end up taking over your job either by virtue of the fact that you've been promoted out and moved to another assignment or something else has happened uh, more dastardly. Hey, this is Matt Folks. I hope you're enjoying this week's conversation. We're going to take a quick break as we introduce you to one of the students in the C-10 Mentoring and Leadership Program. Hey, my name is Kyron Fergus. I'm a senior at Piper High School, and I've been in this program for three years now. My favorite thing about this program is I got the chance to have my own community service project. We created planter boxes for the Piper Elementary School for the greenhouse, which allows the kids to learn more about STEM, and it was, it was, it was really nice. Thank you so much for helping to make that possible. That's this week's C10 Student Spotlight. Now back to the podcast. So how did your career continue to climb in the Army? What were the next steps that were big deals? The next big step was um, the selection to go to Command and General Staff College, which was is here at Fort Leavenworth. Uh, I had spent a tour in northern Italy, a year and a half, and then then I ended up ended up going to the Third Infantry Division in Germany, uh, and then from there to Fort Bragg to of course support command and ultimately the Eighty Second Airborne. Left there and came to. Leavenworth. And Leavenworth is the first major gate where you have, not everybody gets selected, only about 60% of a year group. The way the military uh, acquires its people is everybody comes in in a specific fiscal year. So I was year group 71. So 71 moves along at a certain pace. And then when you hit that point, like 10, 12 years, not everybody is selected to go to Command and General Staff College. So that's the first sweep. Uh, about 40% don't make it. And then the gate starts getting narrower after that point. So I, I've got a feeling that most of us here probably don't realize the prestige of being part of that Operation Leavenworth because it sounds like it's just down the road for us there. But, you know, 
it, I know you're humble, but it was a pretty big deal when you got selected for that, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. Uh, it's one that you really strive for. Uh, I will tell you that the majority of the officers, probably 40 or 50 percent, maybe 40 percent probably, will ultimately move on to full, um, full colonel and possibly flag rank, general officer rank. Uh, that number obviously gets smaller as you go along. All of the international officers that go to the Command and General Staff College, and they're usually, I don't know what the number is now because of the pandemic, but it used to be about 1,000 to 1,500 in every class. The majority of those individuals go back to their home countries and end up being in leadership positions at the national level. So it is, it is a very significant start point. And then the next two schools, the War College uh, is the next big one. And that anybody that goes there is typically going to be a general officer. And uh, isn't there an element of, of uh, the command staff in general college that, that that's where the generals come from, right there at Fort, Le Fort Leavenworth? Well, they'll go. Anybody that's going to be a general officer will have gone through this course, and that goes back to the days of. It goes back to the time when it was founded in the 19th century. So that seems to give a big jump to your career. What came next then? Well, what came next was uh, being sent to the politi political or public affairs side of things. Of course, I left uh, Fort Le Fort Leavenworth and came to KU for graduate school, which is where you and I met and worked together. Left there in 1988 and then went to Berlin. Uh, and then following my assignment in Berlin, I left there in 91. I went back to Fort Bragg to Army Special Operations Command. I will mention that uh, a part of my experience with George there is he did our 36-hour master's program in one year. It's designed to be done in two years. And he did it in one year because he had to do it in one year because his bosses said it's got to be done in one year. Was that kind of the worst year that you ever had in the service then? Well, it, it ranked there uh, high among them, I will say that. Um, and the funny, there's a funny story that goes with this. Max was the chair of my thesis committee. And you have to do a, a bunch of reading, uh, submit a bunch of paperwork to get your thesis approved. And I was still trying to get my thesis approved in the second semester when I had to be, this would have been March, and I had to be graduated by May. And Max was saying, well, okay, we finally approved the proposal that I was going for with the, with the thesis. And then during spring break, he says, well, let's go skiing. And of course, in spring break, I'm writing on the thesis. But I must say, then as an end result, I, I, to this day, I think George's thesis was the best one that I've ever been involved in. It was complete. It was well-written, well-researched, well-thought-of, and I still keep my copy handy well, there. Good. Thank you. In case any of you'd like to read it sometime, it, it's, it's quite interesting. So what were the highlights of the rest of your career after that? Well, probably the biggest highlight was being in uh, the public affairs officer for the U.S. Command Berlin and Allied staff during the, the fall of the wall and unification of Germany. Uh, for somebody that had spent as much time in Germany as I had as a child or a youngster, and then spent another six years in Europe stationed there as an officer. When unification occurred, uh, the night of unification, 
we went to the ceremony at the Reichstag. And for those that may never have seen this area, the area in front of the Reichstag, you probably put 10 football fields in, in there. And that night, the only way you could have passed out, had you passed out, you would have not have fallen straight forward. You'd have to gone to your knees because there were that many people and they were that pressed into that area. Um, and to watch the Germans around me when the flag was raised for a unified Germany again, to watch them all in tears as they sang the German national anthem was pretty incredible. Uh, and then following that, going to Fort Bragg and jumping back out of airplanes again was a, a lot of fun after three years of doing Berlin. Please tell them about some of your experience with uh, jumping out of airplanes there, because I, I like your stories on that. Well, I'm not sure. Some of them are a little too colorful, probably, <laughs> for this group. But when you jump uh, in the 82nd Airborne, uh, everything is done at the lowest common denominator. So if you're going to jump out of an airplane at 3 o'clock in the morning, which is typically when the 82nd will do its training jumps, and they're all combat, uh, equipment, in other words, weapon, load-bearing equipment, your rucksacks, etc. You're typically carrying about 100 pounds to 150 pounds, depending on what, what kind of weapon system and how much ammunition you may have. And the parachute, which is about 1,000 pounds by itself, or 100 pounds, I'm sorry. So you're waddling around and you look like a duck. But if your target time, time on target is 3 in the morning, you start prepping for your jump at two in the afternoon. So you go through a whole host of training and they take 40 seconds of pure unadulterated ple pleasure and turn it into 12 hours of hell. So and it's pretty, pretty tough. And you have to be not nice to the pilots so they don't dump you off in the wrong place? Is well, it doesn't it? matter whether you're nice to them or not, they'll dump you off wherever they can. <laughs> they like to put you in the trees, right? <laughs> well, that'll happen, yes. <laughs> So now that you look back on that, how have the leadership things that you learned in the Army and through that part of your career helped you in the careers that you started afterwards? I think probably having, first of all, a, a good, solid moral underpinning for whatever it is that I, I do. And for me, that, that comes from a, uh, as a person of faith. And that's something that was inculcated very early on and has continued. Understanding that and basing my decisions on how I would react, what I would do. Understand my capabilities, know who I am, and these are things we've all heard before. Know your capabilities, know who you are, understand your people, understand the goals, make sure that there are standards, and make sure that people operate and perform to those standards. Thank you again, George, for giving your life story to us. We appreciate it, and I hope we're still friends. Well, we are, and thank you all for enduring. Thank you. Well, that does it for this episode of the C10 Mentoring and Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, we hope that you'll leave a favorable review on your favorite podcast platform. If you didn't enjoy it or you have other comments or suggestions for potential guests, you can click on the comment link in the show's notes. We drop a new episode at the end of every week, but be sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an interview. And if you or your company would like to help underwrite this podcast, let me know. Until next time, this is Matt Folks for the CU and Major Leagues Foundation saying be safe and take care.
We hope you've enjoyed, been educated, and inspired by this episode of the C10 Mentoring and Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Dayton Moore's See You in the Major Leagues Foundation. For more information about See You in the Major Leagues or the C10 Mentoring and Leadership Program, visit seeyouinthemajorleagues.org. That's the letter C, you in the major leagues.org.